mind that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt. Who am I? Welcome to Who Am I? with Pastor Greg Tyra of Harvest Chapel in Williamsport, Indiana. We're glad you could join us as we teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Today's lesson is one in which we know you'll be enlightened to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's listen in to Pastor Greg as we launch today's lesson on Who Am I? The gospel of Jesus Christ. For just as much as Paul wanted to, the Romans and others through the ages to come to understand what the gospel message is all about, he also wanted to know why such a message was even necessary. Therefore, Paul was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write about the wrath of God. Since time immemorial, the idea of a God of wrath and judgment has been offensive to natural man's sensibilities. But regardless, it is God's wrath against the sin that forms a hub around which today's teaching revolves. Now I know the teaching about God's anger against sin is not a popular thing. And man has tried his best to reduce God to some dim-witted type figure who merely winks at the flaws of mankind and possesses no other emotions but love. However, one aspect of his love is his wrath and his hatred of sin. God is a perfect being. God is perfect in his love. But he's also perfect in his holiness and judgment. Yes, God is love, but I also suggest to you that God is hate as well. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Many people are bothered by the thought of a God who re reacts in wrath and judgment. I would be bothered by a God who didn't. There are those who assert that the Old Testament presents a God of wrath, while the New Testament presents a God of love. However, there is a continuous re revelation of the wrath of God in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. It is also revealed in our contemporary society. God is showing his constant and insistent displeasure with evil. He changes not, but God is merciful. Not because he's lenient with the sinner, but because Christ died. The gospel has not changed God's attitude towards sin, but the gospel has made it possible to accept the sinner. The sinner must have either the righteousness or the wrath of God. Both are revealed from heaven, and you can see it both everywhere. I believe that Paul's purpose in today's teaching was to describe for us the charges against man and to tell us why we need to believe the gospel of grace. The first argument he uses to call men to the Lord is to lay out the case of the prosecution. Paul is going to reveal the problem God sees with men. However, before we can understand why God is angry, we, must need to, we need to know a little bit more about the anger of God. So first, we'll start with a definition and description of, of the wrath of God. Understanding this will help us to understand what is to follow. So turn with me in your Bibles to Romans 1, beginning with verse 18. And I'll give you a second to get there. And we'll read the verses. We'll be reading 18 to 32. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that, that what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even of his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God to an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness, and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie, and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions, for even though their women exchanged the natural use for what was against nature, likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burned in their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even though as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave more to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness, they are uh, whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. I might warn you uh, ahead of time, I probably should have warned a little earlier, is that uh, this is going to be pretty uh, adult-type theme. So I, I don't know if you want your kids here or not, so if you don't, I guess it would be time to have them go back to the room back there. So just to just let you know. Can you tell us where we are again? Okay. Romans, 8, Romans 1, 18 through 32. Okay. So let's pray. I ask you to open up your, Father, I ask you to open up your church's hearts, minds, and souls, and remove all distractions so we can wholly be receptive and concentrate on what I'm going to teach through your Holy Spirit today. Because this is some serious business. I thank you for giving me the knowledge, understanding, and wisdom to teach your Holy Word to your church, and humbly ask you to guide my thoughts and words so that I speak nothing but your truth, and have it reach the hearts, minds, and souls of all who hear it. For this I pray in Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen. So let's start with verse 18. For the wrath of God is received from heaven. The wrath of God. Actually, if you want to know what salvation really is, you have to know how bad sin is. The wrath of God is his holy anger, not his punishment for sin. We sometimes object to the idea of the wrath of God because we equate it with human anger. And human anger is motivated by selfish personal reasons or by a desire for revenge. However, we must forget that the wrath of God is completely righteous in God's character. In verse 16 of this chapter, Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. So, God, or so Paul speaks of salvation. But what are we saved from? First and foremost, we are saved from the wrath of God that we right, right, rightly, righteously deserve. And unless there is something to be saved from, there is no point in talking about salvation. Starting in verse 18, Paul's goal is not to proclaim the good news, but to demonstrate the absolute necessity of the good news of salvation from God's righteous wrath. 
In the New Testament, there are two Greek words used to refer to the wrath of God. One is the word thumos, which means passion, as if breathing hard, fierceness, indignation. This is the word used in Luke 4, which is translated in the King James Version and New King James Version as all the people in the synagogue were filled with wrath when the people of Nazareth wanted to kill Jesus. In other words, they were filled with a sudden explosion of indignation or breathing hard and a passion of anger. However, the word used here for wrath is different. It is the word orge. It means a reaching forth of excitement of the mind, violent passion, ire, or justifiable abhorrence, by implication punishment. It literally means become red-faced. It pictures someone who is holding his anger in while it builds up inside of him. It implies there will be a time when the anger will burst forth. To get an idea of what I'm saying, talking about, try to imagine a dam that has been constructed. Behind that dam, the waters are being backed up until there is great pressure behind that dam. Then one day, the dam bursts and all the fury of the pent-up water flows forth and destroys everything in its path. This is a pretty good description of God's wrath. So consider when this has been displayed in the record of Scripture. At the flood. In Genesis 6 through 8, God's wrath built up and was restrained until a day came when it burst forth in fury. Sodom and Gomorrah. Genesis 19 describes the wrath of God slowly building up against those people until it burst forth in divine judgment. At the Red Sea, Exodus 14 tells us how Pharaoh and his people had been, had been dealt with by, God, with by God through the plagues and God had restrained his anger. Then the sea burst back into place and the entire Egyptian army drowned in the sea. The good news for those in Jesus is that when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God directed all his built-up anger, and, or orge, against sin, past, present, and future, and poured that anger onto the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now those of us who are saved by grace have found a place of shelter from the awesome wrath of God. Does God reach out and react in sudden outbursts? outbursts? Yes. Look at the Old Testament. In Numbers 11 and 16, some of Israel rebelled and were instantly afflicted by plague. Think of Miriam, who was afflicted by leprosy in Numbers 12. There are occasions when the wrath of God is unleashed in an instant, but thankfully God typically deals with sinners by holding back his wrath in an effort to bring about repentance in their lives. Excuse me for a second. When you and I get angry and display our wrath, at best it is tainted by sin. We respond after the flesh and usually our outbursts are, outbursts are selfish and foolish. On the other hand, God's wrath is always balanced, fair, and perfectly just. You can be sure that when the, you can be sure when the wrath of God falls on a life, it is deserved and is executed in perfect divine justice. We need to understand there is no possible way for the Lord to react against sin but in judgment. He is appalled by sin and will react against it. Consider Hebrews 1.3. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he, made, when he made, had made purification of sins, he sat down at the righteous, right hand of the majesty on high. What this is saying is that Jesus himself reacted by purging our sins. We know the Son of God has great power and wisdom. 
Now we know that he also showed great love by purging us the guilt and shame of our sins. He did this himself, showing that no one else could do it for us, and we could not do it ourselves. Verse 18 says the wrath of God is revealed. That is, the wrath of God is constantly in view. We can see it around us all the time, but are often unaware of what it is. If this is true, then the age-old question rises, why do we see the wicked prospering? Shouldn't their lives be filled with pain and suffering? It would seem so from a human perspective. However, when we look at the word of God, it becomes clear that God in his long-suffering gives wicked many chances to repent also. He also wants them to come to know him too. This is the problem Asaph struggled with in Psalm 73. He saw the prosperity of the wicked and the struggles of the children of God and it caused him much anxiety and confusion. However, his perspective was cleared up when he considered the end of those without the Lord in verses 17 through 19. And when he considered that, they were going to experience an unpolluted wrath of God in hell forever. He began to understand that God doesn't always pay off right away. Next, we were reminded that the wrath of God originates from heaven. The ideal is simple but sobering. God's wrath is revealed from heaven against the human race. And the human race deserves the wrath of God. Mankind may think that he has obtained some measure of control and dominion of the world. However, men would do well to remember that God is still in control and he will have the last word in the matter. Wrath will come against all sin, whether it is the cause and effect wrath of reaping and sowing shown in Galatians 6.9 or the full-blown wrath of God revealed in his personal fury against the sin shown in Revelation, sealed trumpet and bold judgments. The wrath of God is always originates from heaven. People need to remember that there is a higher order. There is a higher standard than that, than that of man. And God will always have the final word. Against all ungodliness and righteousness of men, verse 18. One area that encompasses the arena of which sin operates is ungodliness. Ungodliness refers to man's sins against God and his relationship. It is that which he denies the character of God. Because men are the enemies of God, as indicated in chapters 5 and 8 of Romans, they are the focus of his anger, and therefore, as Ephesians 2 says, they are the children of wrath. The reason why, this, why, the reason why is that the absence of a genuine relationship with God will result in some form of false religion. With the lost person, they will worship another God, or they will set themselves up as their own God. Either activity angers the true God and brings his wrath into their lives. Another area that encompasses the arena in which sin operates is unrighteousness. Unrighteousness refers to man's sins against his fellow, and his relationship with his fellow man. What does that mean? It is the denial of the rule of God. Because man's relationship to, to God is wrong, his relationship with his fellow man is also wrong. We treat others the way we do because we treat God the way we do. But at the end of the day, what all these sins have in common is that they are the product of a life that does not have a right relationship with the Lord. Do you realize that every problem that man has with man has its roots in his relationship with God? It's true. We will treat our fellow man exactly like we treat God. When we treat God badly, we will treat man badly. When we love God, we will love other people too. All this time on verse 18. <laughs> We're not even done yet. I'll try to beat the record for, for the amount of time that chapter, or, uh, Pastor Greg has spent on one verse. <laughs> oh, you got me there. 
<laughs> Let's move on. God hates sin. It's the only thing that he does hate. He does not hate the sinner, but he hates the sinner's sins. This is revealed in the world all in the word all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Let me repeat. God hates all sin. God is against it and cannot allow it to go unpunished. He's a good God, but he's also a just God. He cannot just wink at sin and let it pass by unpunished. They react in wrath against the sins of humanity. And those who fail to repent and get in right relationship with him will feel the fury of God's wrath in hell. Okay, we're getting, all, we're getting close to end of 18. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. In verse 19, because what, they may, what may be known to God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. The phrase suppress the truth and unrighteousness means that people know the truth. That means everybody on the planet. But they suppress it and cling to their sin instead of the Lord. Mankind does in fact suppress the truth of God. Every truth revealed to man by God has been fought against, disregarded, and deliberately obscured. Marriage is between a man and a woman. There are only two genders. Human life is sacred. Practicing homosexuality and transgenderism is an abomination. And the list goes on, and we'll talk about some of this stuff in a few moments. If you read the beginning of verse 19, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, you will see that all men have God revealed in them. There is something built in the man that causes him to know that there is a God. That means atheists know there's a God. They just, they just deny it. Yet men love their sin more than they love God. Therefore, they seek to suppress the truth they know about God, while at the same time they seek to go deeper into their sins. Consider John 3.19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. The Bible says in Psalms, the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. With what this verse is teaching us is that the fool is that person who says no to God. He wants his way over God's way and lives in open rebellion, constantly suppressing the truth in God of God while steadfastly holding on to his sins. So what can we conclude from what we've looked at so far? Millions, if not billions of people are under the wrath of God. It is obvious that this is true by the way they live and by the things they do. Our duty is to tell them about a gospel that can set them free. Unless those who have the messages take it to them, they will never be saved. They may know about God, and they may know about their own condition, but they need to hear the gospel story so that they will have the opportunity to make, to make the decision for Jesus. Do you need to pray for someone you know who's lost? Do you need to seek the Lord's power as a witness so that you can be more vocal for Jesus? For with a child of God, there is a cause for rejoicing in this message. Why? Because for us, the wrath of God has been extinguished forever in Jesus Christ. All those of us who are saved by the grace of God stand, or sit in our case, under the umbrella of that grace, forever sheltered and protected from the terrible wrath of the Almighty. That in itself is reason for praise and glory to be given to the Lord. So we've just explored the proven fact of God's wrath and answered the question, what is the wrath of God? In fact, the Bible doesn't seek to prove it. It's merely stated as being a reality. With this in mind, although one can say that God is a God of love, he is also a God of intense wrath. 
His wrath is revealed in the world today and will be experienced in eternity by every person who leaves this world without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Some may wonder why God possesses wrath as part of his nature. The answer to that question is found in the coming verses. God tells in the clearest of words why his wrath is kindled against the children of this world. Verse 18c, who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what is the tr- this truth that man suppresses? It is the very relation, revelation of God himself. You see, God's a strong desire to reveal himself to man. God wants man to come to know him so that he will come to know him personally. To do this, God manifests himself to man in millions of ways every day. Let's notice some of them. Verse 19, because, of, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, and God has shown it to them. Verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. This universe in which we live tells us two things about God, his person and his power. This is clearly seen from what the time the world this is clearly seen from the time the world was created. Creation is a clear light of revelation. It is the primary revelation. The psalmist said in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, and in Psalm 19, the heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. Notice that Paul plainly st- says that God's is evident within them. The idea is that man have all the truth they need to know to come to know. The idea is that men have all the truth they need to need to know within God about God within themselves. I think the most ridiculous position a man can hold is that of atheism. It's illogical and senseless. When the psalmist said the fool said in his heart there is no God, the word for fool means stupid. The truth of God is in the heart of man, is in the heart and in the mind of mankind. There's an interesting story I came across. As a very young girl, do any of you know Helen Keller? Helen Keller was stricken by a disease that left her blind, deaf, and mute. A lady named Annie Sullivan worked tirelessly and selflessly to help Helen learn to communicate. Eventually, Helen learned to communicate through touch, and she even learned to talk. When Annie Sullivan tried to tell Helen Keller about God, The girl's response was that she already knew about him. She just didn't know his name. All this teaches us that even without a Bible, man can come to know about God. I praise the Lord for this truth about God. His His desire to reach man runs so deep that he places the revelation of himself within the very creatures that have turned their backs on him. What a Lord. The power of God's revelation of himself lies in its scope. God has placed his truth in all of us, atheists included. God's revelation of himself is so strong and so clear that every rational creature is bound to acknowledge and worship him. That's saying atheists aren't rational creatures. Notice several areas where God's person is on display. Think of the sea that becomes a mighty tree. Think of birds that are able to navigate by the stars. 
Think of there are the giant telescopes that can view objects that are billions of light years away. Think that at any given instant there are over 1,800 storms worldwide at any given time. Think that there are over 10 million species of insects in this world. Think that the Earth is 25,000 miles in circumference, weighs 6 septillion, 588 sextillion tons, and hangs on nothing. Hmm. It spins 1,000 miles per hour with absolute precision and careens through space around the sun at a speed of 1,000 miles per minute in very, a yearly orbit that is 580 billion, years, not years, 580 billion miles long. Think of the tail of a comet can, come, can be from 10,000 to 1 million miles long, and the comet itself can travel at a speed of 350 miles per second. Think that each second the sun consumes about 4 million tons of matter. That's a second. Think that the light, the light from the sun travels at 186,000 miles per second. At that rate, it would take 125,000 years just to travel across our galaxy. And the Milky Way is just one galaxy among billions in the universe. Now imagine all that just happened. No way. God did all these things to prove to man that he is real and that he possesses great power. No wonder the Bible declares the fool has said in his heart there is no God. Creation so clearly reveals God that man is without excuse. The purpose of God's revelation is to force man to a moment of decision. God's desire is that every person bow before him in humble repentance and worship. However, not all will. Therefore, God has given man every conceivable revelation of himself and has left those who refuse to get right with God without any excuse for their continued state of sin. The universe is the Lord's courtroom. In it, he has proven conclusively that he exists. Those who refuse to believe in him have never have, have been faced with evidence and are left with no excuse for their behavior. They will be guilty as charged, and when they face Jesus at the great white throne, they will hear the charges read close in clear terms. They will be forced to bow before him and acknowledge him as Lord of all. Verse 21. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful. When man has been faced with the truth of God and he makes his stand against God, he is moved into the realm of rejection. This rejection of God is seen in two areas of life. First, this rejection is manifested as man not glorifying God as God. The problem is not that man does not know God, but that he does know him and refuses to glorify him as God. That is, man refuses to magnify and exalt God as God. His primary goal is the honor of self. Men fail to honor God when, and when they refuse to give him their place in their life, the place in their life that he deserves. God deserves the first place, number one in the list of one, if you will. But those who, talk, who walk in unrighteousness and open rebellion against the Lord give him no place in their lives. Therefore, he is not glorified in them, and as a result, he is filled with the wrath and foolishness of, and sinfulness of man. Secondly, this rejection is manifested as man not giving God thanks. While man denies God, he takes all the things that God has given man to teach him about himself and uses it for his own selfish gains, without a single thought being given to the great creator. Now we go to the second half, second half of verse 21. But become futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Because man rejects the Lord and his truth, they are given over to a wretched lives, Note that, one of the, note that 
Note what the rest of the, this verse says about their condition. First, theirs is a hollow life. They become futile in their thoughts, means a futile existence. They are living for themselves, or so they think. In reality, they are merely wasting their time. They fill their days with themselves, but eventually those days will end. And they will, not, and they will find that their time has been wasted and entirely in vain. What does it mean if a man accomplishes great things in this life and then in the end goes to hell? The answer is it means he wasted his life and it would have been far better for him if he had never been born in the first place. Mark 8 illustrates this very well because it says if a man dies without Jesus, he has lost the only thing he has ever genuinely possessed. He has lost his soul. What else does the rest of this verse say about their condition? Theirs is a horrible life. This verse says that when they first, when they turned their backs on the light of God's truth, their foolish hearts were darkened. What men seem not to understand is that the only alternative to light is darkness. As they move farther away from the light, they move farther into the dark. This is why I say their life is a horrible life. It is sad to think the possibility of anyone going to hell without God. But add to that a life spent in this cruel world without a relationship with the loving Heavenly Father, that is a horrible life. To live all those years trapped in a dark dungeon of your own making, living there, thinking you are happy and whole, and all the while the cancer of sin is destroying you from within. Then when it's too late to realize that all the while you could have had a relationship with God and then went to his heaven and spent eternity there with him, instead you experience a horror beyond words, an eternity separated from God. Verse 22. Professing to be wise, they became fools. When man turns on the Lord and closes his eyes to the truth of God, he really thinks he is wise. His perception of himself is that he has all the angles figured out and that he has all the bases covered. The fact is that once a man rejects the truth of God and Jesus, while he may profess to be wise, in reality, God says that he is nothing but a fool. This futility of thinking, darkening of the heart, and folly must be seen as one example of God's righteous wrath against those who reject what he reveals. Part of his judgment against us is allowing us to suffer the damage of our sinful course leads to. Sinners have it all backwards. 1 Corinthians 1 says, or tells us, that the world's eye, to the world's eyes, the Christian is the biggest fool in existence. He misses out on the pleasures of the world. He places his faith in a man who died 2,000 years ago, but he looks for him to return at any time. From God's perspective, however, the wisest decision any person has ever made is to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. I would rather be perceived as a fool than to live a life in sin and prove that I am a fool at the end of the road. Verse 23. And change the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made of like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. You see, a man who says no to God turns around and invents things to worship. Talk about foolish. What the world Lord is telling us is that man is a religious creature. The image in this verse is the ancient Greek word icon. I'm sure we know where we get the word icon from. <laughs> it is a dangerous thing to change the glory of the incorruptible God into an icon image of your own choosing. Because if man doesn't worship God, he will manufacture a God to worship. And if that doesn't scratch his itch, he will find another man to give his worship to. 
This is evidence in 2 Timothy where it says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. If that doesn't fit the bill, then he will ultimately set himself up as his own little God and will live his life only to worship and honor himself. That's what a man does when he's left to himself. However, notice, if you will, in this verse, a downward spiral. Mans, birds, animals, and bugs. It's just the opposite of what people believe about evolution. Notice that when a man steps away from God, he doesn't evolve, he devolves. There is no such thing as a man moving upward. He doesn't progress upward, he regresses downward. And as I just stated, these verses contradict the hypothesis of evolution. Man is not improving physically, morally, intellectually, or spiritually. This is absolute error. Man is moving away from God. And right now, the world is probably farther from God than at any other time in its history. All this tends to prove the point that a life without God is a life that is a downward spiral. And contrary to what the leftists today think, walking away from God doesn't prove you are wise. It merely proves that you're a fool. And it proves that you want your life to be a disaster and your eternity a failure. It's a sad shape to be in. Okay. Before we go on, let me point out in the coming verses, there will be three God gave them up to or God gave them over to that are downward spirals to the absolute bottom of the pit of iniquity. And I believe that God has given many up in today's world for that third time. That's why it's getting worse every day. The basic idea here is that is where, where I'm sorry, the basic idea here is that this is where societies always end up when they choose their ways over God's ways. This is where it starts getting gnarly. It has been the case since ma every major society throughout history and what we are in the throes of in America. Let me explain. Okay, verse 24. Therefore God gave them over to uncleanness and the lusts of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. The first God gave them over to. God also gave them up to uncleanness. It gives a sense of God giving man over to craving of his heart through overindulgence and sexual impurity. Man chooses to sin over God because sin is bound up in his own heart. This is evidence in Matthew 15 when Jesus said, For out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile the man. And in James 1, which says, But each one is tempted is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The natural man will always choose his sins over the will of God, the word of God, and the purposes of God. Man is a sinner, and nothing can remedy that short of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice that the more a man seeks to honor himself by exalting his will over that of God, the more dishonorably he becomes. When he chooses sin over a relationship with the living God, his sinful nature grows more and more corrupt. Consider the whole character representing the former self was not only, I'm sorry, every trait of the old man's behavior is putrid, crumbling, or inflated like rotting waste or a corpse. It stinks and is ripe for, for being disposed of and forgotten forever. That is the truth about natural man. Verse 25, who exchanges truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. As we learn in verse 18, since man refuses to live by God's law, he invents his own law. 
The result is that man always invents his own gods, the chief god usually being self. God calls this behavior the exchange of truth for the lie. Man trades that which is living, helpful, and vital for that which is dead, harmful, and vain. Why does man create his own gods? Because he still possesses an overwhelming desire to worship. However, he needs a God that will condone his sinful behavior. Therefore, he lives for himself and his invented gods. Okay, verse 26. For this reason, God gave more devout passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use of what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the women, burning their lust for one another, men with men, committing what is shameful. Because man has chosen his sin over God, the second God gave him up to is verse 26, which is vile passions. In the case of verse 26 and 27a, we're talking about practicing homosexuality. This is multiple genders and transgenderism. But wait, you may ask. The Bible speaks of practicing homosexuality here and several other places in the Bible, but doesn't talk about multiple genders and transgenderism. I beg to differ. Multiple genders. Genesis, Genesis 1, 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Genesis 5, 2. He created them male and female and blessed them and called them mankind the day they were created. Transgenderism. Deuteronomy 22, 5. A woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man nor shall a man put on a woman's garment, for all who do so are an abomination to the Lord your God. I found it interesting. I did a word study on this. The word wear in here, which says a woman shall not wear anything that pertains to a man, is from the original verb heya, which means to become, occur, occur, come to pass, or be. And the word put on, where they talk about a man shall not put on a woman's garment, uh, this is from the original verb labish, which means to clothe or put on. But consider that a very important figurative use of labish is found in Judges 3, 634, where it may be translated, the spirit of the Lord clothed himself labish with Gideon. This suggests the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and thus empowered him from within. So to me, I took this as a logical conclusion, and to me there's a very strong argument that this verse could be translated to say, a woman shall not be a man, nor shall a man put on the spirit of a woman, for all the who do so are an abomination to the Lord. In these verses, Paul describes the sin of practicing homosexuality. Yes, I said the sin. He uses the picture of the absolute depths of depravity. Why this sin not any of the other thousands of others? I think the answer lies in the fact that homosexuals are typically given more promiscuous behavior than heterosexuals. One statistic has found that many homosexual males have as many as 300 different sexual partners a, a year. The sad thing for us is that the homosexual community in America is estimated to be only 1 to 2% of the population. However, they are, being given, they are being given special privileges, and they are promoting their lifestyle in the open, demanding if people like you and me endorse them, accept them, and affirm them in what they are doing. Even those at the highest echelons of our government are extending special favors to homosexuals and promoting the homosexual agenda. Jesus said in Luke 17, the last days were going to be like the days of Noah and the days of Lot. I want to share that scripture with you. Luke 17, verses 26 through 30. 
Let me get a drink of water here first. As I read these verses, think about our world today. <clears throat> and as it was in the days of Noah, so will be the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, as it was in the days of Lot, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, and they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so, it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Lot, if you'll remember, lived in a society that glorified sodomy and sexual perversion. And God destroyed ancient Sodom with fire and brimstone. The only thing we learn from history is that we don't learn from history. God left Sodom with the smoking ruins as an example. Some have said, now wait a minute. America can't be under judgment because America is a Christian nation. The only problem is that many Christians aren't anything more than senos, what I call senos, Christians in name only. And that's where they are the most dangerous. Ezekiel 16 says, listen to this. As I live, says the Lord God, neither your sister Sodom nor her daughters have done as you and your daughters have done. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy, and they were haughty and committed abomination before me. Therefore, I took them away as I saw fit. God said they had arrogance, abundant food, and careless ease. They were haughty and committed abomination before God. They were proud of their sin. In contrast, in the U.S., sin that used to slink down back alleys now stretch down main streets. What used to be called sin is now called the sickness, and now it's being called socially acceptable practice. And the only sin today is to call that sin, sin. Now, there are people who tell me that I'm ignorant and bigoted and whatever. But if I say something that's not in the scripture, let me know. Because if it's in the Bible, take your argument up with God. It's just, and if you think that I'm hard-hearted, I'm not. It's just that I'm honor-bound to teach the God's word. You see, a nation that cannot distinguish moral perversion is a nation on its last legs. And we are bringing it upon ourselves. Isaiah 3, for Jerusalem stumbled and Judah has fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The look of their countenance witnesses against them and they declare their sin as Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to their soul for they have brought evil upon themselves. God said this is what ruined Judah. This is what ruined Jerusalem. And I submit to you that this will also be the ruin of America as surely as our God, as a God in glory. I'm only telling you what the Lord God says. And what happens because of practicing homosexuality? Man's destruction. He becomes sexually perverted. Do you think God is against sex? God is in favor of sex. God made man a sexual creature. God made Adam and Eve. And when he gave Eve to Adam, he said That's, that is very good. But God says, flee fornication. God says, thou shalt not commit adultery. God says, thou shalt not lie with a man as with a woman. He's not trying to keep us from sex. He's trying to keep sex for us. Sex is wonderful as God intended. For one man to love one woman, one another in monogamous marriage, to 
just have that fulfillment and joy. Well, the devil is a pervert. He has no raw materials. He can only take that which is from God and pervert it. So man becomes sexually perverted. You know, man becomes sexually perverted, becomes socially perverted. Now, as Paul tells in verse 26 that even their women were involved in this insidious lifestyle. The emphasis here is that women are usually the last bastion of morality in society. Men are more given to, sexual, given to sin, especially sexual sin, than our women. However, Paul is describing a people who are totally given up to a sinful standard of life. He might as well be writing about America. You need, we need to be in much prayer for those who are in the forefront opposing the onslaught of sexual perversion, homosexuality, transgenderism, etc. As the days go by, the battle cries for diversity, tolerance, and inclusion. This is, I, these days are already ahead of us, or here as far as I'm concerned. The day is quickly coming when being labeled intolerant bigot will result in a conviction for a crime. And we see those days coming so fast it's pathetic if they haven't already. There are already initiatives underway that would be try to force people from condemning any lifestyle, but especially a homosexual one. What strikes me as being really sad is the fact that certain mainline so-called Christian denominations are accepting, ordaining, and marrying homosexuals. And some groups are all, all for declassifying practicing homosexuality as a sin. Even the fact that it would be debated at all is beyond my wildest comprehension. I find the thought of the same-sex relationships revolting, abominable, and utterly sinful and depraved. And I'm in good company because God does too. Verse 27b, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. The choice of lifestyles, and it is a choice, brings its own judgment. When God gives a man to his choice of lifestyle, that man will find his, that his attraction to the addiction to a sin will become stronger by the day. He will literally be overcome by vile affections. What used to bring a twinge of shame when committed will now be no concern to him at all. Will bring the door for him to sink ever deeper levels of sinful depravity. That is the penalty of their error. Being abandoned by God enslaves a man to his sin, sin fully. It is as though God has been actively restraining him. And now he takes away his hand and leaves him fully to his sin and its ultimate end. This judgment is also evident in the physical realm. STDs is one of the first thoughts that comes to mind, with instances of sexually transmitted diseases becoming rampant in our society. Verse 28a. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, at this point, man's rejection of God is complete. As he gives himself more fully to his sins, the less room he has in his mind for God. Eventually, God is rooted totally out of the picture by the vile affections that man, is, that man is trapped, that has man trapped. Even the gods of his own invention become less and less necessary. The person who become this, has come this far in his relationship, rebellion, come to think of himself of his own God. And now the list of things that, that happens once you reach this point. God gave more to the base mind, first off, to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. 
So the third God gave them over to is a debased mind. The idea is that man does not want God in his life. So he gives him over to the power of a totally debased mind. At this point, he is absolutely capable of any sin imaginable. So Paul gives us a list of 21 sins. We just went through those. So. So those lists of sins that I went over, if you're listening, do those describe the world we live in? And oh, don't we have a debased mind society today? Some people say, it, what, does it, what does it matter what people do in their private lives? What does it matter? Man, when he turns his back from God, becomes not only sexually perverted, but socially perverted. The world becomes a madhouse. And this madhouse takes up these almost three verses. Let me tell you something. And when you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you're going to love what he, what he loves, and he loves everybody. It's not a matter of race, what color your skin is. It's not a matter of whether you are male or female. It's not a matter of, it's a matter of grace, and God loves us all. And if you have a vestige of hate in your heart, you better beg God to take it out and put the love of Jesus in there. I mentioned earlier what happens when a man turns his back on God. He becomes sexually perverted, then he becomes socially perverted, and finally he becomes spiritually perverted. And where does it end? Just look at Western society, including the United States. Verse 32. Who knowing the righteousness of judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Man knows where his sin will end. However, he chooses to sin against his own conscience and go on about his sinful activity. He pursues the sin with everything in his power. And to make matters worse, he passes his sinful behavior on to others by encouraging them to follow in his footsteps. They also delight in those who live with the same lifestyle. These people encourage one another in their sins while both plunge headlong toward hell. And we entertain ourselves. How do we entertain ourselves? Sitcoms about drunkenness and perversion, immorality and adultery. And Satan has a pipeline right into our homes. He even had his own show. I don't know if you knew that or not. Satan had his own show called Lucifer. He also has his own sneakers. Oh, wow. Yeah. What will we have next? And not only do we do all these things, we have pleasure in them that do them. We make them the most admired people in America. Listen to me. God's people need to get before Almighty God in prayer. I'll repeat, three times in this chapter it says God gave them over. God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity. God gave them over to degrading passions. God gave them over to a debased mind. You see the downward spiral? You see this in America? Do you know what the very worst thing God could do to America, the very worst thing? Just leave us alone. Just say, all right, you got it. Take your vices, take your lust, take your evolution, take your abortion, take your homosexuality and transgenderism. Take it all. You've got it. So long. Romans 1 is being replayed right in front of our eyes in America. Willful determination, wicked self-deception, willful self-destruction. I believe that we are in the last stages of being given over. If we haven't already been given over. If we add all that, 
with other markers we see today, the rebirth of national Israel, the geopolitical posturing of Gentile nations, COVID ringing in the loss of liberty, the loss of the rise of one world currency, the rise of one world government, the rise of one world religion, the rapid advancement of technology conditioning the world for the Antichrist, the rise of apostasy, the decline of Christendom, and the blurring lines between truth and lies. We can see we are close. The world is too far gone to ever recover from our impending day with judgment, despite what anybody says. Even within most of Christendom, Christ has been placed in the outside by an increasingly apostate church. And as Revelation 3 says, he is currently knocking on the door and seeking those from this generation who are still willing to sup with him. <coughs> the problems Christians face today is deep-rooted and multifaceted. We are facing the last two to three generations that have been dumbed down and told they're nothing more than a cosmic accident that came from monkeys. Furthermore, they have been fed cultural and moral relativism. Adding fuel to that is the fire of the rise of liberal te theology, which diminishes Christ, the cross, and the gospel. All in favor of social justice, materialism, and a whole host of faulty, ab aberrant, aberrant things. Make no mistake, the world today and leftism is a social and political ideology is wholly incompatible with the true biblical Christianity. Moreover, because many have bought into the lie of humanism, leftism, and COVID, their hearts are hardened and increasingly given over to the spirit of the Antichrist. The willing ignorance should not be ignored or tolerated. God has provided his son as a payment for mankind's sin. God has given us proof for our faith in scripture and history in archaeology by his Holy Spirit and his witness in this chapter throughout creation, throughout creation itself as testimony. In other words, mankind no longer has an excuse. If man continues in the path he is going, and he will, then the only place left to go is in the arms of wrath, judgment, and damnation. Although these days are growing darker and darker, God has not left us, our, his church, here abandoned to be to our own devices. Whether deliverance comes in one's last breath or at the rapture, God will deliver his own justly delivered Noah and Lot in their days. It's not my opinion this will happen. It's straight from God's word. But even though God is long-suffering and patient, his patience towards evil is not limitless. God will not be mocked. A man reap what he, reaps what he sows. Judgment is coming. But the time is now. It's a time to repent. Second Peter 3 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. P.T. Foresight and Gestation of God said this, The non-intervention of God bears a very heavy interest, and he is greatly to be feared when he does nothing. He moves in long orbits, out of sight and sound, but he always arrives. Nothing can attest the judgment of the cross. Nothing shakes the judgment seat of Christ. I don't know about you, but I find this image very troubling. It is harsh, the true reality that those who reject God will ultimately be rejected by God. And Even though he's a God of love, mercy, grace, and long-suffering, he is still a God of holiness, justice, judgment, and wrath. There is a price to pay for rejecting him. 
There is a species of ant in Africa that builds its colonies and nests in deep underground tunnels. It is here that their young and their queen live. Even though these ants may be a great distance from the nest foraging for food, they can sense when their queen is being attacked, and they all become extremely nervous and uncoordinated. If she is killed, they become frantic and rush around aimlessly until they die. What a perfect illustration of the person who has rejected God in his life. Being unable to find direction and peace apart from a relationship with God, he rushes around aimlessly, pursuing his sin until he dies and enters eternity. While this is not an altar call, if you are in that shape, let me invite you to come to Jesus today. Truly repent, truly believe in, and quietly ask him to come into your heart. If you've done that, positionally you are now in good standing with God, and practically you can start running the race. That will provide untold challenges and joy as you walk with Jesus for eternity. And if you know someone in this shape, someone unable to find direction of peace apart from a relationship with God, rushing around aimlessly and pursuing his sins endlessly, let me challenge you to pray for them. It may be even that you are saved, but have allowed some of these sins mentioned in these verses into your life. You need to get that dealt with right now. I invite you to come to the Lord to seek a fresh, renewed walk with the Lord Jesus. Let's obey him today. Heavenly Father, what we study here is some very serious business. It's quite apparent that this world is headed for judgment. And this judgment must be very close based on the sign you're clearly revealing to us. But being your children, as you have promised in 1 Thessalonians, you have not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And for this, we are eternally grateful for your blessing, grace, and mercy. But there's a vast world out there of lost people that are steamrolling into eternity with no hope because they don't have Jesus. So through the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to be bold in sharing your good news to reach a dead and dying world and get as many as possible into the fold before you come and take us home at the rapture. We ask this in your most precious and holy name, Yeshua. Amen. Lord be with you. And that concludes today's message on Who Am I? with Pastor Greg Tyra of Harvest Chapel in Williamsport, Indiana. If you're in the area, we would love to have you as our guest. Harvest Chapel is located at 418 Old State Road 28, Williamsport, Indiana 47993. We meet for worship on Sundays at 10 a.m. Our prayer meetings meet Wednesdays at 6.30 p.m. Our Bible study meets on Friday at 7 p.m. Today's and previous messages are available on CD. If you would like a copy, please call 765-404-7203. We look forward to seeing you again next time on Who Am I? Whom shall I fear? Whom shall I fear? Because I